good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My guest today is Alan Gratz, whose new middle grade novel, Grenade, is published this month. I had the pleasure of meeting Alan at a previous Bookmarks event, and I'm interviewing him today at the Bookmarks offices. Alan, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Thanks for having me. I want to start with a quick look at your career as a middle grades writer, and especially your more recent career. You've been writing novels that are deeply rooted in historical reality. What drew you to that particular type of writing? Yeah, the last five, six books that I've written have had a historical angle to them. And it was really Prisoner B3087 that set me off on that path. Prisoner is based on the true story of a guy named Jack Gruner, who as a kid survived 10 different Nazi concentration oh. camps during World War II. And uh, Jack's Jack, Jack took his story to um, Scholastic, my publisher, said, hey, do you want to do a book about it? They were like, oh my gosh, yes, this is incredible. Um, but you're not a writer. Can we find a writer to help tell your story? And they called me up, told me Jack's story. They said, are you interested in helping Jack write this book? And I said, yes. So um, that, I, had, I had written a couple of things that had historical angles to them in the past. Brooklyn Nine had nine different generations of an American family and their connections to baseball over the decades and generations. But I'd never... So, uh, you know, most of the stuff I've been writing up until that point had been fantasy or mystery or sports related. Um, so I wrote this book about Jack and his experiences during the Holocaust and, and World War II uh, largely. And then I started writing a book about a contemporary spy thriller for kids, mm -hmm. Code of Honor. And while I was writing that book, Prisoner came out and kids started reading it. And I got more fan mail about that one book than all of my other books combined. Wow. Yeah. And they, the, one of the biggest comments they always said was, when are you going to write more about World War II? And I was like, okay, let me finish this book I'm writing and I'll get right back to that. <laughs> um, I hear you. So my very next book was Project 1065 about a kid who's a spy in the Hitler Youth. Um, my next book after that was Refugee that has a World War II connection to it and has also got a storyline set in the 90s, which for these kids is historical fiction. Right. Um, and um, and then uh, this latest book, Grenade, is about the Battle of Okinawa and, right. and set in 1945. So it was really Jack's story that set me off down that, that path. What sort of books did you read when you were in middle school? You know, I read books. I read like... Um, the Hobbit, I read uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, um, that kind of thing. But I wasn't a voracious reader. Um, I didn't have my nose buried in a book uh, the way that a lot of authors uh, remember their childhoods. I was just as likely to be out building a fort in the woods or playing kickball or, or coming up with a story with my action figures, um, playing video games. I did all those things, and books were just a part of that fabric of my middle school life. Right. Um, so... It took a really, um, it took a really exciting book to grab me and to, to to put me in a seat long enough to finish reading it. Exciting, funny, engaging. It, it took a special book to do that, and that's kind of what I've tried to do as an as an author now for kids. As I'm trying to write books for me when I was a kid, the, right. the kind of book that that would have stopped me from doing all those other things and put my butt my butt in a chair and said, <laughs> "I got to read this." Yeah. And so um, a lot of my readers now are 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 boys, 
And a lot of them are people that their parents and teachers come up to me after the kid is done getting their book signed and say, that's a kid who never read before, or that's a kid that, that I knew would love books, but I never could find the right book for them. Right. And so um, I'm, I'm feeling that kind of, that for, for some of those kids, I am that author that I, that I guess I was looking for when I was a kid. You've written books about characters surviving the Holocaust, about characters who are refugees, who've had to flee their home countries, now a character who's involved in one of the bloodiest battles of World War II. These are not lightweight topics. This, right. is, this is difficult subject material. And yet, as you say, your books are very popular with young readers, and in particular with boys. What do you think it is that resonates for your young readers in those kinds of stories? You know, I think there's a there's a verisimilitude to them that they really uh, they really that appeals to them that they really respond to. Um, they love the fact that that uh, that prisoner is about a real person. They want to know about real people. They want to know about real events in history. They also, I you know, kids are kids are often protected by their parents. By their by the teachers by people who care about them their innocence is protected we they they are protected in the sense that that people don't want to tell them about the horrors of the world because they know that those things are going to creep into their lives as they get older they're going to learn about those or experience those in some way perhaps but people want to shelter kids for as long as they can mm-hmm. and I think that because of that kids feel that they know when when parents tell them you can't watch that show you can't you can't read that book because it's too much for you and so what i'm trying to do is write books that are appropriate for them but still tackle some of those big issues that have perhaps been kept from them or or if they are taught to them, are taught to them in a more sanitized way. Um, I think one of the reasons that kids respond to my books is because I try and tell it like it is. Um, I do make concessions for my age group that I'm writing for. Um, I try to hold back on the graphic description more than I would if I was writing for adults. So while I might tell you that there was medical experimentation on prisoners in the Holocaust... I don't have to describe graphically what that mm-hmm. entailed. So, um, I, I, but I still put it in the book. I still put it in there that it happened, and 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 we see a kid who's been experimented on, and and the, he's a ghost. He's 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 among the Walking Dead, and. We understand that it's horrible, but maybe we don't understand the full extent of it. And depending on how mature that kid is, they can either learn more or they can fill in the blanks on their own. Or if they're not mature enough for that yet, that can be processed, but they don't have to go into the full horror of it until they're ready for that. And there's one other thing that you do differently than you would do if perhaps you were writing a novel for an adult set in the same period. And that is that your protagonists all have something in common. They're kids. They're kids. That's right. And so one of the things about writing books for young readers is there's an expectation that your protagonist will be a year or two older than your intended reader at the most, either the age of your intended reader or maybe one or two years older. It's kind of an industry standard. And I'm not sure when this began uh, because there was a time when there were kids' books that had adult characters in them. Um, And... um, but then there were, uh, I, as children's books became their own category, mm-hmm. then kids became the protagonist of those stories that were intended for them, which really began to limit the kind of stories that you can tell. Um, you know, I, in Code of Honor, I, I'm writing a, a contemporary spy story. My main character is 17 years old. Why, as the story progresses, is he the hero? 
Why is he the protagonist when it is a contemporary terrorism plot with with bombs and, and villains? And why are the police or the FBI not taking care of that? And so this is part of the challenge of writing for kids. How do you tell a compelling real-world story, either in the present or the past, where kids are the main characters? Right. Um, when I have a situation like the Holocaust or the Battle of Okinawa, unfortunately, kids were often caught in the middle of that and were as much a victim as adults. So there are many times, again, unfortunately, where kids were there too. And we may have read histories of those time periods, and we've seen accounts of adults, but we often don't see accounts of kids in those times. So it's my job to find those, those moments, pull those out, or in the case of like a contemporary terrorism plot, to find a good reason to put kids in there as the main character. It's a challenge, but, but I really like that challenge. And why do we make books for kids about kids? Because they really love reading about other people their age going through things that they don't go through. Right. Um, they, books like these and, and many others are windows into a world that, thankfully, most kids in America don't have to experience. Thankfully, most of our kids don't have bombs falling on their homes or, uh, or, um, or who've been through refugee situations. That's, that's changing. We have an increasing number of, of refugees and immigrants in America who have had those experiences. But for people whose families have been in this country for many generations, they're a long time removed from those experiences. Many of them may have been, all of them were immigrants of, of some kind, unless they were brought here as slaves or Native Americans who were here to begin with. Um, everybody else came here as an immigrant or a refugee. And how far back that story is in your family um, you know, sometimes we forget. People, families just are so separated from those experiences, they forget. And, and for kids to then read a book about kids who are refugees right now in the world today, it opens that window onto a world that they don't see. I would like to think, to answer your question about when did we go to yeah. the sort of child-centered uh, protagonist, I would like to think as a Lewis Carroll collector that yes. it was with Alice in Wonderland, which really right. was a very groundbreaking book in terms of taking the child and putting her at the center of the narrative Absolutely. rather than having her be somebody who is essentially a miniature adult. Right, uh. right. And she was very much a kid in that story. And then in America, you have you have uh, Wizard of Oz. Sure. You know, and so early, we have an 1800s. We've got a story with a kid at the center of it. And then all through the sort of the 40s, 50s, 60s, 40s and 50s, you had sort of the Stratemeyer Syndicate books. Oh, you yeah. know, I mean, so we had even, the, but Nancy Drew was was really she was out of high school she had her own car she could drive around so even in that case even and the hardy boys were older too but yeah, they had a jalopy yeah right yeah. yeah so they had to have something to get around in um but but we started to see i think you're right i think i think that the lewis carroll is one of the earliest examples of that um and that became the trend kids love to read about other kids yeah I would love to sit here and talk all afternoon about the Stratemeyer series because I just wrote a novel that's oh. sort of about those kinds of books. Oh, good. But let's get on to Grenade. Moving on. Yeah, so, that'll be another podcast. So Grenade started for you eight years ago on a trip to Japan. Tell yes. us about how that happened. Right. So uh, I was invited to Japan by the American school in Japan, ASIJ, who are in Tokyo. It's an, uh, an American international school. It's an international school. It's an American school. Um, everything, all the instructions done in English. And they had discovered my first book, which was called Samurai Shortstop. 
It is set in Japan in the 1890s, but they discovered it, loved it, said, hey, would you like to come over and be a writer in residence at our school? You'll work with 6th, 7th, and 8th graders to teach them how to write uh, historical fiction. I worked on playwriting with the 8th graders, historical fiction with the 7th graders, and some science fiction short stories with the 6th graders, but my biggest job was the 7th grade. I, was, I, I met a little bit with the 8th and the 6th grades, but the 7th grade was my, my core group, and um, it was an amazing trip. I was there for six weeks. Uh, they put me up in an apartment in Tokyo. Um, every day I would go in and I would work the full day at the school. And then when the school bell rang, I was the first person out the door. I was faster than the kids. <laughs> and I was out exploring Tokyo. I was hitting the subway. I went to baseball games. I went to sumo matches. I went to museums. I explored uh, Akihabara, which is the place where they have all the toys and the electronics. I went to Shinjuku Station. I went to uh, Harajuku, where, where they had all the, the crazy costumes and the clothing that were there on the edge of fashion. Um, and I had an amazing time. And um, I, while I was there, I met an older man who was tangentially connected to the school. I was introduced by a teacher. He was an older man who had grown up on the island of Okinawa. And he'd been a boy on the island of Okinawa during World War II. And um, he said, I got, a, I got a story for you. And I hear this a lot, and I'm sure you hear this a lot as a writer. You know, people come up and say, I got a story for you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and and it, it's not always the greatest story. It's important to them because it was their life or their father's or their grandfather's or grandmother's story, something like that. Um, this guy had a story. And it was that during World War II, he was there during the Battle of Okinawa. And he and all the other middle school boys were pulled out of school, lined up by the Japanese army, and told, here's a grenade go off in the forest and don't come back until you've killed an American soldier. Huh. And I had read about the Battle of Okinawa a little bit, not much. Um, I was not writing World War II books at the time, so my only exposure to it had been through whatever studies I had done in the past in history classes. And um, couldn't believe it. I mean, I believed him, but was astounded that this could have happened in the past. Came home, started doing research, and found out that that happened to him and hundreds of other boys. And not only were they, uh, oftentimes they were given two grenades. One was to kill an American soldier. The other one they were told, use this one to kill yourself. Because they were told the Americans were monsters, they're going to kill you, they're going to torture you, then kill you. Um, so once you've used a grenade to kill somebody, use the other one to kill yourself so you won't be captured. Um, and I sat on that story for eight years trying to figure out a way into it. And, and I finally found my way in now. To most people in my generation, and I'm sure to your readers, Okinawa is a name, if anything, we know as one of those islands in World War II. Right. Um, and I would imagine many of your younger readers have not ever heard of Okinawa. Never, yeah. How do you make a place that's so unfamiliar to them resonate with reality in the way that you do? It, uh, thanks. It, it, it's something I try very hard to do, and it's very, it, it's difficult. It's a challenge. Let's put it this way. I write about World War II. Sometimes my readers are so young, they have not studied World War II sure. in depth in school. So I'm at a school visit once, and I'm talking about Nazi Germany this and Nazi Germany that. And a kid raises his hand and says, were all the people from Nazi bad guys? And I sat there. I'm, I've, heard, I've heard so many questions, and I've, and I've heard uh, different variations, but I'd never heard this question. I was like, what does he mean from Nazi? From Nazi, and I kept trying to get him to explain. I was trying to to, to re-ask the question and get him to explain it. And finally, I realized he thought that Nazi Germany was like saying Winston Salem, North Carolina. Right. He this thought it was the town the name. name, right? A, a town in Germany, Nazi Germany. 
And I was like, oh my gosh, this kid, like he's so coming from such a place of, uh, of zero knowledge yeah. that when I say Nazi Germany, he's hearing that like a city and a state. And he doesn't, and, and so when I write a book about World War II for kids, I have to start from scratch right. every single time. So when I'm writing a book about the European theater, I have to tell you who Adolf Hitler is. For adults, I mean, my gosh, we don't need to know that. And so if you were writing a book for adults, you could launch in and start talking about Germany and, and the war, and, and you don't have to get into the history of it. For kids, I have to make sure that within a, a chapter or two, that there's always a little bit of something that, that grounds us and tells us what's going on and where we are. Um, after I do that, how do I connect to the kids? Then I would, I, my job is not to tell a story that is of history, but to tell a story of a kid and their family, right. right? So the trick is, I tell the story of the Battle of Okinawa. I tell the story of the Holocaust. I tell the story of the Hitler Youth. But I'm not telling you the history of any of those three things. I'm telling you the story of one kid and one family in that situation and what happens to them. And everything that happens to them has to then be specific to them and unique to them, but also general, also yeah. general enough to cover the time period. Um, when I wrote about refugees, uh, one of the three stories in Refugee is about Cubans coming to America on a raft. And one of the things I read about that journey, this is set during the 1990s, and one of the things about that journey is that three out of every five people who left Cuba, they estimate, died at sea right. on that journey. And so when I'm writing this scene, when I'm writing this, this, this storyline, I wanted to make sure that there was tragedy along the way. Why? Because the larger historical con in the larger historical context, this was a tragic trip for many of the people who set out on it. I make one person on my raft die, and that's very personal to my characters in that story. But it then represents the larger history as a right. whole, right? So I don't say in the book, three out of every five people died. I do in the author's notes at the end. But in the, in the fiction, in the, in the story itself, you don't know those numbers. This isn't about history. It's about this one family, about one family, right? And so that's always my trick. And I think that some historical fiction that fails for kids, th there's amazing historical fiction. I'm not saying I'm the only person who does this. But the ones that don't do it right are the ones that focus more on the general history, mm -hmm. the larger stuff, and they fail to remember that this has to be a story about one kid and that kid's life during this time. And you can't, you can't show everything about the Holocaust. You can't show everything about a refugee journey. You have to show what happens to that one kid. And it has to be representative, but it can't be everything. So who's the one kid? Tell us about the one kid. In, in Grenade, Grenade, the one kid is, his name is Hideki Kaneshiro. He is uh, 14 years old. Um, that would still have been in middle school for them. And, and even today, that's the upper level of middle school for, for American kids. Um, he is a kid who has all his life been associated with cowardice. Um, one of the things that I learned about Okinawa and Okinawan religion um, was that they have this idea of mabui, and mabui is the the uh, is your 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 spirit, your soul, what we might call your soul. But that you can have more than one mabui in your body. A, a, a mabui can attach itself to you. You can also lose your mabui if there's a traumatic event or something happens shocking. You can you can it can become dislodged from you, mm -hmm. and he believes because his family believes that he is carrying the Mabui of an ancestor who is a coward. And so he begins the story ready to prove his bravery, to overcome this, 
this curse, essentially, that, that he feels is upon him. And therefore, when he's given grenades and sent off to kill an American soldier at the beginning, he is, he's all in. He's going to do it. Um, and then the reality of the situation, of course, hits him. Um, the other kid in the, at the heart of this story is a kid named Ray Majors. He is 18 years old. He's an American Marine. He's going into his first battle of World War II. He is trying to figure out how he's going to survive. He has run away, not run away from home, but he has left home as early as he can to get away from a father who is suffering, he doesn't understand this, but in many ways from PTSD from World War I. Right. And um, he is going to, as he goes through the battle, come to understand his father better as he sees what war is really like. And these two kids are going to meet, and when they do, what Hideki does with one of those grenades will change both of their lives forever. That's my tease for the story. <laughs> <laughs> Hideki's from... A different time, a different yes. culture, a different geographic place. But he still has to steal, deal with some of the same issues that your typical 2018 American middle school reader has to deal with. Right. Tell us, for instance, about his relationship with Yoshio. I hope I'm saying that name Yoshio, right. Yoshio, yeah, that's good. And, and how that would connect to a 21st century reader. Sure. Uh, there's another kid who's uh, been his personal bully at school. That's Yoshio. And uh, Yoshio is a, a year or two... Uh, higher up, and the, at the time, this is something I learned from writing Samurai Shortstop, there was a real culture of hazing and violence in Japanese schools mm. um, from the 1890s on, um, as there were in other countries. Uh, and um, it's the rite of passage, it is believed, that the younger kids will be, um, will be beaten up by the older kids and, uh, and hazed. And um, because of the war, some of that's been put on hold. And uh, Yoshio has been sort of uh, tracking down, um, tracking down Hideki to to try and give him the the beating that's coming his way, and um, he's got to deal with that in the middle of the Battle of Okinawa. Like like I have to stay away from this kid so he doesn't beat me up. And so um, you asked earlier about how do I how do I make a how do I write a book that's set in another time and a place that that a kid from today's world from here and now in America can connect with, and this is one of the ways that I do it, is that there are some things that kids deal with in every generation. Bullies, uh, parents splitting up, or, or, or you know, a difficult home life, uh, for example. Um, like the, the, the way that some people are born into uh, low-income families and struggle to, to have the same opportunities that those in, in, in upper-income families have. These are things that have been around forever. And, right. and so, in addition to throwing, when I throw something at, at kids like the Battle of Okinawa, a different culture, a different place, a different time, it's important to have some things be touchstones for contemporary readers, and bullies are unfortunately a touchstone. When I wrote Samurai Shortstop, the other part of that is baseball. There's a lot of Japanese history and the Meiji era in there, but the other part of it is baseball, and baseball is a huge part of many kids' lives, mm -hmm. and that becomes a touchstone for them. That is the way into that story for them, because so much of the rest of it is foreign to them. And so in this book, um, there is... There, there's this this idea of being a coward and being small and wanting to to show your bravery, but also being picked on and bullied. Yeah. Um, so those are my touchstones for this book. You've set yourself, I think, a fairly challenging job in terms of having. I think it's fair to say you have two protagonists. I mean, Hideki is clearly the major protagonist. Right, he is the main but, character. But but Ray is is if anything a minor protagonist. Sure. And they are at absolute 
ultimate odds with one another. I mean, their their goals, if we were to write it down in, on our note cards, would be <laughs> kill Hideki each would other. say kill Ray, and right. Ray would say kill Hideki. Exactly. In terms of craft, how do you approach the job of writing a story in which your protagonists have such contrary goals. Yeah, I mean they each have to have their own their own mission, their own goal. They don't they don't know each other. So, well, you know, literally they might write down, you know, kill an Okinawan and right. you know kill a, kill a Japanese soldier, but if you're Okinawan with a grenade in your hand, that counts for right. American soldiers. They if you come at them with a weapon, they it's their their job to shoot, to shoot you no matter what who you are. Right. They're told when they come on shore, Okinawans are different from Japanese people, and be careful of that. But unfortunately, the Japanese armed many of the Okinawans. So how do I do it? It's, it's hard. Um, I try to show the parallels in each of them. The, the fears that they both have, the, the, the struggles that they have to hold on to some sort of moral compass in the middle of a war where you're asked to do horrible things. Um, the, uh, really, the, and, and I, I say they, they will run into each other, they do because both of them are running away. Like when that moment comes in, in the book, they are, they are so overwhelmed in the moment by the things that have happened to them. They are running just to run. They are running to get away from whatever, from the thing that has just happened to them mm-hmm. without spoiling too much. They are, they are running and running and they're running without knowing where they're going and they run right into each other. And so what I try to do is even though they have their missions are essentially to kill each other. I, I show you the parallels in their stories and the connections, right. which is the same thing I did in Refugee. That's how I was able to connect um, people who were refugees in the 30s and the 90s and in the present day by showing the parallels, even though they're in different places, they're from different communities, from different countries. And, and their, their challenges may have, may have different details, but in general, they're the same. Most of your readers are too young probably to even have grandparents who were in World War II. <laughs> yeah. So to them, yeah. this is this is distant and, and easy to sort of dehumanize. Yes. And the leaders in both in the Japanese army and in the American army use this, what I think of as this dehumanizing term, yes. the enemy. That's right. And you hear them talk about the enemy is evil, the mm-hmm. enemy is bad. Do you think that the way the story is written for those two characters helps to dehumanize the enemy? This idea of the enemy. And more importantly, do you think your readers will look at that and go, hey, what if we had dehumanized the notion of the enemy before we started shooting at each other? Right. I, I hope so, yes. And this is a, one of the themes I'm playing with in this book, definitely, is that both sides uh, demonize the other. Mm-hmm. Um, the Americans were guilty of it. Um, they, they, we, we know the yellow peril propaganda from World War II. Um, you know, it, it was, it was famous. Um, the, the soldiers who were hitting the beaches were, uh, ready to kill themselves some Japs. And that's the way they talked about it. That's the way I have my characters talk about it. I'm very careful in the book to put a warning at the beginning and also to clarify in my author's note that that's not how we talk about people anymore. Mm-hmm. For kids, that's important because they... My my book might be the first time they've heard that expression, and I don't want it to be something they pick up sure. from it and start using. But I want them to understand the context of it, and the reason I put it in is because of this demonization of the other, the dehumanization of the other, as you've put it. Um, and the Japanese absolutely did that. They called the American monsters. They said they're going to come in here and, and torture us and kill us and rape our women. Um, they They made each other out to be monsters. And one of my 
my big things in this is to dehumanize the other. And both Hideki and Ray begin to see the enemy as not the enemy, but as people. Mm -hmm. And that will change both of their approaches to the war. Um, you know, for a long time in the war, one of the ways that the America during the Battle of Okinawa, many people hid in in tombs. In Okinawa, families had tombs. These were built into a hillside. The Japanese would use them to hide out in, you know, to attack, sneak out and attack, or or, or to take protection from the American shelling. But Okinawan civilians would also use them to hide in. So the Americans never knew whether there would be soldiers or civilians inside. And for a long time, they would just throw grenades in, pour gasoline in. Um, and, and just kill anybody who is inside. Um, then they began to realize, oh, some of these are civilians. That made a difference to some people, and it didn't make a difference to some people. And so um, Ray, my character, begins to see the Okinawans definitely as a distinct people who are not coming at them trying to kill them and saying, wait, we, 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 we can't just throw grenades into these places because we don't know who's in there. That's not, that doesn't make him very popular with the guys who are who are then sent inside when it might be J Japanese soldiers with machine guns. Sure. So, um, yes, there, both sides. I, I wanted to show what happens when you demonize the other and how easy it is to, to make them into monsters, but then how difficult also that becomes in a war situation when you begin to see them as humans. Yeah, it becomes um, a moral complexity right. that's that, much more than just us versus them. That's right, and very difficult. And you understand how some soldiers, they just have to flip a switch and turn that off. But we hope also that they'll be human and, and have that switch on. So it's a, we're, we're putting, we, we put those people in the Pacific in really difficult positions. And it's one of the reasons, I think, why many men who served as soldiers and Marines in the Pacific do not speak of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, is a, it, it was far less clear-cut than the battle in Europe. Right. In Europe, we, know, we knew then how bad the Nazis were, and as we learned more about them, it just got worse. Right. And it became, we, we refer to these folks as the greatest generation. They're the people who saved us from the Nazi menace, and they did. And we look back and we can say, this was, of all the wars that we have fought, perhaps one of the, the most justified in the European theater. Yeah. Right? The Pacific is a lot murkier. Yeah. The, and, so it, and, and, and I think that's why a lot of kids' books shy away from it is because how do you deal with this complex situation? I waded into it. We'll see, <laughs> we'll see how people think I did. <laughs> You've written that you hope Grenade, like your previous books, will, and I'm quoting from the author's note here, yeah. will ultimately inspire empathy and encourage young readers to think about the things that divide us and tie us together. Yeah. How do you, it's, it's clear how you get readers to think about division right. in a book about war, but how do you get them to think about common ground? Right. Common ground is, is showing that, that show, making them both human. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the biggest thing. Um, you know, even with refugee, I, my, my main goal was just to humanize the refugees. We, we have terms for people, refugees. We have terms for people, the enemy. Um, or even Okinawan. What, is, what does that mean? Who are the Okinawans? What does it mean to be Okinawan? Um, how are they different from the Japanese? And so one of the big things I tried to do was, especially with Hideki's character, to learn as much as I could about Okinawan culture, about Okinawan religion, about Okinawan history, about the, the world of Okinawa in the 1940s, and try to bring that to life so that my characters become not two-dimensional characters with labels, but instead three-dimensional characters with lives that, that began off the page and will continue once the story is over. You know, it's easier to do that 
with American characters. It's easier to do that with Ray. I can tell you that he's a, a kid from a farm in Nebraska, and whether you're from a farm in Nebraska or not, you have a context for right. that, right. right? You can understand that. When I tell you about about Hideki and his family and and their different roles and, and the way that they live their lives, it's very foreign to us. And so it's my job to show you the complexity of that life, but also, again, to find those parallels that he, Hideki is looking for his father during the battle and connects to his father, and Ray is dealing with father issues in a different way, but they both, they're both thinking about their fathers and dealing with that. Um, they both have you know, mothers that they are remembering and, and caring about in different ways and, and, and connected with in different ways. And then also there's this, um, in, in the book, one of the things that I do with both characters is I, I use photographs. So... Um, during the war, one of the things that I read, during this battle in particular, one of the things I read was about soldiers who would take the photographs off of the bodies of the, the enemy soldiers that right. they killed. Right. And these photos, they were family photos. And so you hear stories about American soldiers and Marines coming home with a stack of photos, and it's Japanese soldiers with their families, with their dogs out in the backyard or on right. vacation. And... They collected these in a way as mementos, but also I, I, I like to think, and this is at least the way I wrote it in the book, is they began to see them as human beings. They began to see these soldiers as not just the yellow peril, the menace that I have to kill the enemy. They were people who were also drafted and thrown into a battle the same way that they were. And they were fighting for their country and their world. And Yes, they remembered that we had been bombed at Pearl Harbor, and yes, you know they were our enemy that we were fighting across the Pacific, and both sides had done awful things to each other. But, but it's the collection of those photos. Ray collects photos from people that he has killed, but also from other, other bodies that he finds along the way. And then Hideki ends up collecting photographs as well. Right. And he ends up with photographs of American soldiers, and he starts collecting those from American soldiers. And, and it's through those, those, those windows into their past lives, before they were soldiers, that they both begin to see the enemy as, as, as not other, but somebody just like them. Yeah. Uh, and that was an important element for me, was those, those photos and the way that both of those boys collect photos. You mentioned Okinawan history, and I think a lot of us think Okinawa is just an island that's part of Japan. Right. Japan has lots of islands, right. but while it was politically part of Japan, it, it has a different culture, it has a different language, right. it has a different heritage. And you talk about Grenade as being a story about people who are refugees in their own land. Yep. What did you mean by that? Yeah, so Refugee, the book I wrote before this, is about three different refugee kids and their families who, who leave their country behind when violence comes and, and drives them away. And I, I told you earlier that I, I sat on this Grenade story for a long time trying to figure out my way into it. And the way I finally found my way in was through Refugee. I realized that if refugee was that story about people who leave their lives, at, oh, sorry, leave their homes after bombs fall uh, and try to go to another country for safety, Grenade is the story of what happens when war comes to your country and you can't leave. Mm -hmm. um, the Okinawans were refugees in their own land. At the beginning of the war, there were an estimated 450,000 Okinawans on the island. Uh, by the end, I'm oh, sorry, by, by, the, by the beginning of the battle, by the end of the battle, they estimate that there were only 150,000 mm. uh, Okinawans left on the island. So somewhere between two-thirds and three-fourths of the Okinawan civilians died during the battle. Almost every man over the age of 18 died mm. during the battle. So 
it was devastating to Okinawa. They are still dealing with ordnance that is buried in the ground. The United States battleships shelled the island for weeks before the invasion. Weeks! Just shelling, shelling, shelling. There are, there are bombs still buried, there are grenades still buried, mm. there are bullets in the ground. This is an island that was just a war zone for more than a month, for, for some 40, 50 days. You know, the, the invasion itself, but also the shelling before it. And um, it's, it, it's, it, it, is, it is the story of what happens when war comes to your country, and it's, it's not your war. The Okinawan people are Okinawan. They're not Japanese. They're not Chinese. They've been ruled by both of those places in their history. Um, they were ruled by Japan for, for um, maybe 150 years, something like that, before World War II. Um, and they're, but they're 400 miles south of Japan. Right. It's, they're quite a ways off. But yes, they, they are still a Japanese island. And, but the, the thing was that the Japanese, when they when they conquered the island, first the first thing was samurai who who just basically demanded tribute and would say, "We'll come down there and kick you around if you don't give us tribute." Yeah. But then eventually, when Japan uh, became a unified country, um, and uh, and those samurai lords were were all organized under one uh, samurai lord, then then Okinawa really became. Uh, a much more uh, a, a Japanese island, and right. during the Meiji period, the um, they started trying to work the Okinawan language and religion out, and they had rules like if you if you spoke uh, Okinawan at school, you got a dunce hat and a and a sign, a placard around you that said I'm an, I'm an idiot essentially, um, because you spoke. Okinawan and not Japanese, something that we've seen in Ireland and other places, yeah, right? Yeah. Where you know, with English, um, and in India, so there, there, there are many places where this has happened in history, and Japan was no different, and so Okinawa has managed to maintain its identity as a separate place, but at, but, but the Japanese have really worked hard. Um, to try and make them conform to, to be a part of Japan, but they are still very separate. Yeah. We tend to think of men who go off to war and come back as being great heroes, yeah. and, I, and I think that's a perfectly fair thing um, to portray warriors as, as brave and courageous. But your two main characters certainly also have a lot of insecurities. I think it's one of the things that probably makes them relatable to your readers. Tell us about some of the insecurities that Ray and Hideki have. Sure, you know, so Ray is is dealing with um, he's dealing with his own fear. He's dealing with his own um, his own worry that uh, that he should be protecting the Okinawans uh, and and not and not killing them. He doesn't want to be a monster. His he sees his father as a monster. Hmm. Um, his father came back from World War One a changed man, and he never knew his father before that. Um, so he's grown up with his father as this person with the thousand-yard stare and who is prone to bouts of violence, who drinks. Um, and we understand, as contemporary readers, as adults, we understand that this is the way that some people react when they are put in a situation in a, in, in a war, when they, are, when they see awful things and, and, and have to do awful things. Not everyone, but some folks. And um, Ray is trying to understand his father, trying not to become his father. And of course, you know, when I, when I have a character who doesn't want to do something, I, I'm going to make them do it over and over and over <laughs> again, um, as any good author would. And so um, Ray is put in moral situations where he is forced to shoot civilians, where he is forced to make decisions like that. He, he kills soldiers, but he also ends up killing civilians to protect himself and to protect the other men 
who are in his platoon. And so um, he's dealing with those issues. How do I, how do I maintain my humanity? How do I not become the monster that I believe my father to be? It also gives him, of course, as I said earlier, some some insight into who his father is, and 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 he can cut his father some slack. Hideki's worried about being a coward. He he's been told all his life, "You're a coward. This isn't for you. You're a chicken. Don't do this." And so he is ready to take those grenades and run off into the battle and do some damage with them to um, to uh, uh, appease this this spirit the, the, that uh, of his ancestor. To uh, and and really, what he's going to discover through the, throughout the battle is that there is. There is bravery in not fighting. There is bravery in, in, in not sacrificing yourself needlessly. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are hard lessons when you've been told the other thing too often. Your books deal, as we've said, pretty directly with some, some pretty rough topics. Yeah. And I think if we made a movie out of Grenade, huh. you could see it being an R-rated movie yeah, very easily. easily. What do you tell a parent or a teacher who wants to keep your books out of the hands of a child? Yeah, and I hear this. Um, and again, I talked about people wanting to shelter kids, and, and I get that. I have a daughter, and the last thing, I, I, I want to I keep the, the harsh realities of the world from her as long as possible in some ways. And in other ways, though, I know that the world is a hard place. For some people, it's far harder than others. But um, I think that one of the best ways kids can learn to deal with difficult situations is to read about them on the page, in the pages of a book. Mm-hmm. It's the safest place to read about drug addiction or to read about abuse. Um, it, it is a safe place to read about those things, to understand them, to form opinions about them, and then to recognize them when they happen. It is a safe place to read about war. You know, so many kids go out in the backyard and they play war. I did when I was a kid, sure. right? We, most of us have, and we we play the heroic parts. <laughs> we right. you know we we have the rah rah shoot them up and maybe ah oh, we die and that sort of thing, but we're not thinking about the real serious consequences of it. And so, I, I write books for middle schoolers about war. It would be a very easy thing for me to write a rah rah book where it's just like showing you know heroes in battle, right. but I think that would also be doing a disservice to the reality of the situation. And so um, I want kids to celebrate heroes when they come along, and there are heroes, and there are heroes in war. I'm not saying that soldiers are, are bad, I'm, but I am saying that, that war, is, is, war is bad. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a really simple, very, very simplistic thing to say, war is bad. But it is, and sometimes I think kids forget that because they only see the, the glorious parts of it. They only see the, the, the heroic parts. So I think it's a safe place. I think books are a safe place for kids to get that experience. Um, and I, I personally would, I want my daughter to see those kind of things um, and, and have that world opened up to her so that she can begin to make decisions about the world and, un- and, and understand the world before it comes at her. I think one of the things that struck me about this book, and this just goes to write what you were saying, is that unlike in a film, we can know what the characters are thinking. Right. And so we can see the the fear that Ray has or the, right. or the reaction that he has the first time he, he kills a Japanese soldier that you wouldn't see if you were watching this on a film, except perhaps in the expressions. Right. A, a great face. actor can, can maybe bring some expressions of fear to their face, but... 
you know, a, a, it's it's a poor movie that has a voiceover, you know, right, and, right. and it's a great book that has an internal monologue exactly. where, you, where you can hear this, and it is one of the great strengths of of novels, and so I can get in the head of Hideki, I can get in the head of Ray, in particular, getting in the head of Hideki and 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 somebody from a different culture, mm-hmm. that is a great way to get kids to understand why characters make the decisions right. that they do. You know, um, when when Hideki is when Hideki learns that. Um, he may have another Mabui, you know, uh, attached to him, then part of his motivation becomes, I got to go see somebody to help me get rid of this. And for an Okinawan boy of that time period, that was a real motivation. Yeah. For an American kid today, that's no kind of motivation at all. It's like, that's that's a made up thing. I don't, you know, that might be the way some kid reacts to it today. Sure. Um but for, for Hideki, it's very real. Yeah. It's a part of his religion. It's a, it's, a, it's a reality. And so my job then is to, to convince you of why that's his part of his motivation. And, and a great way to do that is be inside his head. Right. We like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should all right. be able to answer each of them in just a few words. Okay. But hopefully they'll get us all something to think about and give our listeners some special insight. All right. Like a lightning round. It's, this is the lightning Literary round. lightning right. round. All right, so here, here comes go. the lightning round. What word do you love to work into your writing? Oh, that's a great question. I can think of one I try not to use, and that's suddenly. Well, what word do I like to incorporate or do I like to work in? Well, well Fear. It's, it's kind of awful to say that, but I, I'm writing about kids in peril, yeah. and they are often afraid. Fear. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Aha, suddenly. Now we got something. There we go. There, so I, I skipped ahead. <laughs> um, I hate it in my own books. Uh, like, when something sudden happens, just say it. Yeah. It just happens, right? And, and I catch myself for, in first drafts always saying suddenly. I'm like, stop. Where's your favorite place to write? Uh, my favorite place to write is in my office, in my home. I do not like to go out to cafes and things. I know that works for some people. My office, in my home. Where could you never write? I could never write at a ballpark. <laughs> I'd be too interested in the game. <laughs> <laughs> to what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Ah, I throw a lot of them to the wind. Um, I use sentence fragments, and I, I'm a big believer in sentence fragments. I'm, I go, go for that one. What was the first book you remember reading? I'm sure it was a picture book. Maybe Where the Wild Things Are. That was a very early one for me, yeah. What are you reading now? Uh, so right now, I'm reading a science fiction novel by Isaac Asimov, hmm. The End of Eternity. It's an old classic I haven't read. What book would you like to have written? Oh, Ready Player One. <laughs> <laughs> that, that one I've got a quick gotcha. answer for. <laughs> Love that book. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? Yeah. A romance novel. Hmm. Believe it or not. <laughs> and finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? Oh, uh, that uh, I love hearing, there's a bunch of stuff, but I would love hearing a kid say, uh, yours was the first book I read, and now I've read a ton of, a ton of other books. Oh, that's great. Yeah. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a new community gathering place and independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Alan Gratz, whose new historical novel for middle graders, Grenade, is available wherever books are sold. And of course, you can get signed copies right here at Bookmarks. Alan, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Charlie. During the busy fall publishing season, Inside the Writer's Studio will post new episodes on the 10th, 20th, and 30th of every month. On our next show, I'll be talking to Newbery Medal winner Kelly Barnhill about her book of stories, Dreadful Young Ladies. 
Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.